He that but looketh on a plate of ham and eggs to lust after it, hath already committed breakfast with it in his heart. This is Pints with Jack, Season 7, Episode 4. Dear Mary, Letters to an American Lady, Part 2. Dear Pints with Jack listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading some of Lewis's letters, which have been brought together in several different collections. In season seven, we will read his correspondence with Mary Willis Shilburn, found in Letters to an American Lady, as well as his letters to children, and his exchange of Latin letters with St. Giovanni Calabria. Today's opening quotation is one particularly funny line from one of the letters which we'll look at today. Lewis was recounting having mumps as an adult, and describing the pain he experienced during his convalescence, which came when he salivated over food. In this episode, we'll be covering a two-year period, looking at the letters from 1954 and 1955. We will see Lewis's relationship deepen with his correspondent, which is why the previous episode was called Dear Mrs. Shelburne, and today's is called Dear Mary. All blessings, Andrew, David, and Matt. Good morning, gentlemen. It is very early in the morning. In fact, I think this is the earliest we've ever recorded together. How are you? <laughs> this is a little. This is a little late for me. About four hours after I wake up. Wow. Uh, yeah, me too. Ale- Alexander has been waking up at, at between five and five thirty for most of this week. Isn't it lovely? Ugh. Yeah. So you guys are fans of what of what Lewis calls the small, dewy, cobwebby hours of the morning. He didn't have a toddler to deal with. <laughs> I think I, I have an old an old roommate that I when I was in New York who put it to the test of seeing if he could really become a morning person. And I am kind of convinced there's a group of people that you can just switch between, but there are certain people that are just night people. Full stop. He tried the whole <laughs> get up early for months, like really gave oh, it a yeah. fair old college try. And he's just he'd rather work from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And then sleep, and that's when he was most efficient. And for me, it's like yeah. 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. is my most efficient time of work. <laughs> well, it depends on what your occupation is, you know. Yeah. Coder, True. drug dealer, vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man, Batman. <laughs> the, the worst part of, of teaching high school was I had to be at my desk by 7.30 every morning. And I just... You know, in a perfect world, I would have, you know, prep until noon and then actual work from noon till about, you know, seven or eight. And yeah, I'm a morning person between the hours of midnight and 2 a.m. <laughs> you know, the answer to your question of of, of how I'm, uh, I'm doing, I feel like I need to share because I have a feeling my girlfriend will listen to this at some point. You know, I've been playing this new game this last week and we did it with my family, uh, Tickets to Ride. If anyone's oh, heard ticket of it. to ride, <laughs> really fun game, really fun game, and I love to be uh, fake competitive. I don't actually care if I lose board games, but just just for the record straight, I'm four for four uh, right now uh, <laughs> with multiple oh, wow. different people. I haven't. I don't know if I'm past the beginner's luck stage yet, but you know, just just some beat beat down smackdowns been dished by Matthew Bush here. We'll call that portentously <laughs> the honeymoon period. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call it the period before he's married, at which point you've really learned that whenever you win, you really lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, I, I need, you know, I, I I need prayers of what to do here because I'll be going to her family right after we record this and playing them. I mean, like, 
do I issue these smackdowns as well there? Do I need to humbly just fake lose? You know, I don't know. Be yourself. Be yourself because that's who you're going to be. If there's a future in this, you're going to have many, many holidays like this. So be yourself. My brother-in-law, at whose home I'm graciously staying, uh, uh, he's very competitive. The whole family's pretty competitive and they love board games. Um, one of the great innovations that he has is he's got these – he buys these, you know, big – batches of little golden plastic trophies. And if you're playing in a game with two or more people, two or more others, uh, and you win, you get a little trophy. And then you take a picture with your trophy <laughs> and you post it on the group chat and it becomes very competitive. <laughs> there are 17 adults and oh my gosh, the fight for the trophies is huge. But that that's a fun way to add add some to the, uh, to the playing. I love that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to modify Andrea's advice somewhat. Be yourself, just not too much. <laughs> well what is everyone drinking today something caffeinated i assume i didn't quite have time to go get to the coffee i looked at like 10 minutes before this started there's a starbucks right by me i'm like well i can't be late so <laughs> nothing <laughs> never stop me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay well needless to say i'm leaning on the pg tips how about you andrew oh lovely uh you know borrowing some of my wife's uh, starbucks holiday blend we found it on sale at walmart last year after christmas and it was so cheap and there were so many that we have kristen's been drinking it all year long so <laughs> well gentlemen today we're going to be toasting our top tier patreon supporter kevin larson and kevin in this, uh, these letters, I've already noticed a big theme uh, of, of Lewis's, which is offering up suffering. And so uh, in any season of life where you might have uh, suffering or struggle, may you offer it up to the Lord uh, and recognize it's an invitation to complete and utter dependence on Christ. Hmm. Cheers. 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 These are pitiful cheers. Didn't the review <laughs> once say to David that you have to fix that for him to fix his review? <laughs> well, I'll at least improve the, the little clink. <laughs> yeah, sorry. There you go. It sounds exactly like my coffee cup. <laughs> well, once again, I'm going to be trying to give a little bit of shape to the correspondence that we're looking at. And as mentioned earlier, it's over a two-year period. And we'll just be calling out the bits and pieces that caught our attention. And we were discussing just before we hit record, just there's so much in here that we could dwell on. And it's really tempting, but um, I will do my best to push us through this two-year period. I just wanted to give a, a little bit of chronological context to 54 and 55. So in late in 54, Lewis um, uh, is inaugurated into a new chair at Maudlin College, and we'll hear him uh, in Cambridge. We'll hear him discuss that a bit in the letters. And so 54 is his last year at Oxford. By 54, Lewis has completed the Chronicles of Narnia just the year before. Um, Warney is occasionally um, uh, off in Ireland. Um, he was a binge drinker, unfortunately. So when Lewis mentions uh, Warney's illness and absence, that's some of what's happening. 54 is also not only the last year he's at Oxford, it's the last year that Joy Davidman writes love sonnets to him. And in 55, in the spring, they're composing till we have faces together. By um, the end of 55, I believe that Lewis has hired a, a, a house for Joy in Headington. So she's getting closer and closer to the scene. Minto has been dead for two or three years. And so that's some of what's going on in 1954-55. 
Well, let's begin with the start of 1954, when Lewis writes a letter on the first day of the year, uh, apologising for the short response due to the avalanche of mail he's received, saying, quote, if there were less goodwill going through the post, there would be more <laughs> peace on earth. <laughs> and as someone who has always hated sending Christmas cards, I'm a big fan of that. Yes, Lewis says, I send no cards and give no presents. Yeah, and... Poems continue to be exchanged between Jack and Mary, with Lewis sharing his poem, The Nativity, around this time. And in several letters during this year, they discuss poetry at some length, and we discover that Lewis doesn't like free verse poetry, and he thought it actually ruined the art. And he also talks about his distaste for the abracadabrist poets. So I'm assuming it's referring to the same thing, poets that just try and produce things out of out of thin air that's just not very good. And he says that, quote, what gives the show away is that their professed admirers give quite contradictory interpretations of the same poem. I'm prepared to believe that an unintelligible picture is really a very good horse if all its admirers tell me so. But when one says it's a horse and the next says it's a ship and the third says it's an orange and the fourth says it's Mount Everest, I give up. And I really feel this one because I feel this way about most contemporary art, particularly the more abstract it is. I'm willing to concede it's good just as long as the the fans of it give reasonably consistent interpretations. But when they're wildly different, it does kind of seem just like splodges on a page. One of the things, though, he does say about the abracadabrist poets is that he likes some of them. And so you see him not just hidebound against all modernist literature – but he likes some of it, and you know, he's willing to be flexible about some of that. Mm, as long as it's good. <laughs> but he just <laughs> thinks that typically it isn't. Now, we can also tell from this letter that Mary seems to have been having some sinus problems, which have kept her from going to church. And Jack offers her this comfort. He says, I am sure that when God allows some cause like illness or a bus strike or a broken alarm clock to keep us from mass, he has his own good reasons for not wishing us to go to it on that occasion. He who took care lest the 5,000 should faint going home on an empty stomach may be trusted to know when we need bed even more than mass. Hmm. And, and this, is, this is just so emblematic of Lewis in these letters. It's just lots of really good common sense that you sometimes hear people fighting against, you know, people people turning up at church with the bubonic plague uh, out of some devotion. And you've got, you got to admire the devotion, but at the same time, go to bed. God also gave you, gave you one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, and as I was reading these letters, I was struck by, of course, this was my first adult Lewis book. And I often give credit to Surprised by Joy, um, but I also, as I'm rereading these, it's like, oh, there's just so much practical good sense, so much deep wisdom about living the Christian life. And um, I love that. I love uh, it, I love the sensibleness of it. Um, and I love how he talks about staying in bed. I think that that's, there's some, some blessing to that. I lie down and fall asleep at once, for in the Lord I dwell secure. It's in the Psalms. <laughs> hmm. Okay, as mentioned in the previous episode, Jack and his correspondents spend much time talking about their failing health. And at the end of January, Jack has a letter with some really funny lines about modern medicine that I just enjoyed, saying, quote, we mustn't let these modern doctors get us down by calling a cold a virus or a sore throat a streptococcus, you know. <laughs> and in that letter, there's some discussion about the royal family where Jack has to teach Mary about the distinction between British and English. 
Yeah. And as he says in The Four Loves, only foreigners and politicians talk about Britain. I figured that you'd jump all over that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, right before that discussion, though, it's a line that I often quote, and I misquote it, um, but he says, the peasants make everything easier by the names they use. To them, a consumption is only a cough, and a cancer only a stomachache. And so. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. We've got a lot to get through. So moving on to a letter from February. He offers some advice, which we might not expect. Advocating to mm -hmm. marry, not, quote, to weep inwardly and get a sore throat. He says, if you must weep, weep. A good, honest howl. I suspect we, and especially my sex, don't cry enough nowadays. Aeneas and Hector and Beowulf and Roland and Lancelot blubbered like schoolgirls. So why shouldn't we? And this is not the only time that he mentions that. He talks about not being a man of enough tears and uh, and admits that that's a problem. Um, of course, this is 1954. And so Joy Davidman is coming on the scene. And I think that uh, as we see reflected in A Grief Observed, she helps him kind of get more in touch with the emotional side of himself. Mm. Although I do think he was very much prepared from his Greek and Roman literature. And he, he says very similar things in The Four Loves about when you read how these men wrote. Right. It's like, this isn't, this isn't the, the stereotypical manhood that, you, that we expect today. Yes. Falling on each other's shoulders and crying and, and begging for one more kiss or embrace from a, from a male mm -hmm. heroic companion. Yeah. Now, with the first letter in March, in the addition to housing our quote of the week, we find that C.S. Lewis just didn't understand jerks. And Matt, you had some thoughts <laughs> on this, didn't you? <laughs> well, ironically, I'd, even though he probably does say that on the full letter in front of me, I think he understands jerks like to a T perfectly. And I thought his, his comment here where he says, that makes me think of it, makes me think it comes from insecurity. A dim sense that one is nobody, a strong determination mm -hmm. to be somebody, and a belief that this can be achieved by arrogance. It reminds me of Henry Nouwen in Life of the Beloved. He talks about mm -hmm. how when we don't live from the state of the beloved and we think we're worthless, we develop pride to overcompensate for that. So he actually kind of makes the argument that insecurity is even a deeper thing than pride uh, of the root of all evil. Like the more insecure we are, the more tendency we have towards pride to mask that insecurity. And so I, I love that wisdom. I think we can see that in ourselves to varying degrees. And I think we can see that in other people. There's a beautiful part. His, his solution, if we encounter it, is a lot of wisdom in this as well. He goes, I must encourage you to go on thinking about her or him, whoever it ends up being, that after all is almost the greatest evil nasty people can do to us, to become an obsession, to haunt our minds. A brief prayer for them and then away to our other subjects is the thing if one only can stick to it. Like I thought... When you recognize that their arrogance that's coming at you shouldn't, one, shame you or make you feel bad, like don't think about it. That's, it's, it's nothing mm -hmm. to do with you. It's to do to them. And then two, offer it up in prayer. Realize that this is a person hurting and suffering as well. I just think there's a lot of wisdom. Now, I don't do this in real time. Instead, I attack back <laughs> typically, but um, it's something to strive for. Absolutely. And he mentions it later that somebody who is um, who is being really terrible to Mary Willis is probably somebody who's deeply hurt themselves. I will say uh -huh. that um, the dim sense that one is nobody, a strong determination to be somebody, and a belief that this can be achieved by arrogance makes a perfect flipped formula. And so, especially in light of the love of God, I mean, this sounds like what I preach every week, a dim, a strong sense that one is somebody, 
an attenuated or a weakened determination to be nobody, a belief that this can be achieved by humility, right? If we understand our somebodyness, our personhood, the love of God that um, I saw a quote earlier, I think David might have. Yeah, our belovedness. Yep. It's like a daisy being watered by a tsunami. I think I saw a quote somewhere. Um, <laughs> and if we understand the overwhelming love of God for our person, um, that would make us less uh, interested in being a somebody and then more uh, quick to show humility. And, uh, and he talks about humility and humiliation later on too. So just such practical good sense. Mm-hmm. And in a letter at the end of March, we see Jack and Mary move on to a first name basis. Matt, this was another letter that you put in the notes that particularly jumped out at you. What do you want to say about it? Well, this kind of goes to a concept that I love, which is redemptive suffering. It's it's amazing. I'll just say this high level too before reading it, how often in here he talks about, and it's probably because Mary is going through a lot of suffering consistently. And so he's constantly talking about connecting this to Christ's suffering, but then the hope, this one's not in this section, but then the hope of the future where he talks about like at some point this is going to end no matter what, you know, maybe it ends here in a a week, maybe it ends in a year, maybe it ends at death when you enter into heaven, but so no matter what it's going to end. So here he said, it is at any rate a form of suffering, which we can try to offer in our small way, along with the supreme humiliation of Christ himself. There is, if you notice, a very great deal in the New Testament about his humiliations as distinct from his sufferings in general. And Mm -hmm. it is the humble and meek who have all the blessings in the Magnificat. One -hmm. must never be either content with or impatient with oneself. My old confessor used to impress on me the need of the three patiences. Patience with God, with my neighbor, with oneself. Hmm. No, that's marvelous. And in uh, around this time, I think a couple of years earlier, Lewis writes in Joy Davidman's copy of Lewis's second best book, The Great Divorce, um, that there are three images I must continually forsake and replace with better ones, my image of God, my image of my neighbor, and my image of myself. So you hear this, this idea mm. echoing through. Uh, his confessor, by the way, for the record, was an Anglican priest named Father Walter Adams. And he went to St. Mary Magdalene, or Magdalene maybe, they pronounce it, St. Mary Magdalene Church, um, right by the Martyr's Memorial in Oxford, a few, just a few steps from the eagle and child. Um, I love this. We should mind humiliation less if we were humbler. <laughs> There's a goal to shoot for. It's <laughs> a good quote. In April, we have a short note saying that because it's Easter, he has a ton of mail, and he's actually even bold enough to ask Mary not to write him during the holidays, Hmm. which I was a little bit surprised at, but quite impressed by, in fact. (laughs) And in the next letter, in May, he responds with some good news regarding Mary's job and living situation. And those two topics, they come up regularly in the letters around this time. And there mm-hmm. is a, it's also peppered with various comments where you can tell that she's written something that an American would understand that uh, someone living in Britain, because even British people <laughs> refer to Britain, uh, wouldn't understand. Uh, he says, uh, he confesses he doesn't know what a penthouse apartment is. 
<laughs> and then in the next letter, he says that he's finally caught up with his backlog of letters, but it's now examination period in Oxford, and that's taking up all of his time. And he says, I shall become human again at about the end of September. And Matt, you had some strong feelings about this. <laughs> I want to talk about these. I'm surprised that you dropped this back in here, David. <laughs> I think the simple thing is I've always believed in that quote, if you don't say no, your yeses don't end up meaning much. Um, and, and ironically, Lewis says that later in one of these letters. He talks about it with duties with work. If you're saying yes to everything with work overworking, then you're actually doing a, committing an injustice because you might not be doing the things that God's actually calling you to because you're doing all of these other things. So I think the same thing could apply to letter writing. If you're like, I have to do every single one of these, well, maybe you're not giving certain ones the time that he wants. Maybe you're not prioritizing your close friends that are important as well. So yeah, I've just always been a big believer in prioritizing. You've got finite hours. There's trade-offs. You can write a bunch of fluff stuff to people to respond, or you could write deep stuff to really help people. Hmm. Well, I appreciate you said uh, in your notes that you disagreed a little bit with Lewis and his priorities, and I'd I'd come leaping to his defense, but that's no surprise. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that they're good enough friends. It's kind of like if I've made an appointment for coffee with a with a buddy, and something pressing comes up, I can call him and say, "Hey, can we meet another time?" Um, hey, I really can't this week, trusting that the friendship is an actual relationship. And you get the sense as these letters progress, especially in this couple of years, that with Mary Willis, they have begun to become friends. And he says, please tell me more in your next letter about, I mean, he's encouraging her correspondence at the same time. And I think that that would be just galling. I can't imagine that Lewis would, you know, somebody of Lewis's stature would be so generous with, you know, continuing the correspondence. So because there's a relationship there and because he has, um, uh, he has changed in a couple of letters, he has said, he has begun to call her Mary and says, I return the compliment by telling you that my friends all call me Jack. So they are now friendly enough to be on a first name basis. And I think that he has the kind of gracious presumption that friends and lovers can have for each other to say, hey, I really need this right now. And so I think that's some of what may be happening here with them. As you point out, she is also starting to be separated from the pack. We are reading through one particular stream of letters in which there were many, 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 and she is slowly starting to become a particular correspondent of his. Hmm. And I would also say that, well, you know, it's important to have your priorities, but uh, hopefully friends can give each other a little bit of leeway so say, for example, if you were taking your girlfriend to breakfast and missed a, a podcasting recording, those friends would be gracious <laughs> about it. <laughs> or let's so, say um, that you were putting together show notes and you send messages and don't get back responses or very late responses. Good friends, just let that stuff go and don't bring it up again. <laughs> Here's the one thing I'll say that I think is probably where my I've changed as I've hit my 30s. I used to be more... Andrew's mindset there. And for one-offs, for sure. I mean, of course, one-offs, that's that's a no-brainer. Your friends should obviously be forgiving in that sense. But I used to, this was in San Diego and St. Bridges is what really changed me. As I became a leader there, I'd get pulled in a lot of directions. 
Mm-hmm. And I started realizing my friendships were suffering. I mean, there's no mm-hmm. doubt you can say to a friend, hey, I'm going to skip this coffee. I've got to do something. You start doing that overall, your friendships are going to suffer. And sure. so I started just realizing I allocate 80% of my time to my closest friends and 20% of time to like, and these are kind of rough numbers, but to looser people. Yeah, honestly, with the podcast, this has happened in this community here in, in Grand Rapids. I have a lot of people reach out like, hey, I'd love to grab coffee. I'll schedule it a month out. Just because mm-hmm. I, I just say, all right, there's only so much time I'm going to fill with this. My friends get 80% of my my friendship time. There's 20% for the others because I just saw my friendships diminishing. And maybe this is an extrovert, introvert kind of thing. I want quality, five quality relationships rather than 20 like mm-hmm. lesser touch ones. I don't know. But it was just, I kind of, I used to do the other way. And it just, I found my life less fulfilled and my friendships starting to suffer. I mean, they still loved me. So I think there's a difference between, of course, they loved me. They were always there when I came back, but I was like, I need to start prioritizing them. There seems to be a, to a change in priorities and he seems to be privileging um, Mary Willis. And uh, it, it, there, she encourages a family called the Kilmer family to write to him. And in other correspondences, he tells his correspondents, please don't encourage anybody else to write to me. I already have enough. But he welcomes this correspondence, ends up exchanging 26 letters with the Kilmer family and, um, and dedicates the magician's nephew to them. And so he gives her a kind of, uh, a kind of free, free range. Incidentally, sometimes, um, <laughs> well, I can speak for myself. Uh, did, I did not, I must confess, contribute to show notes, uh, this time. But as I was looking through my book, I realized I had a huge index. Um, already in my annotated book. And the last time I contributed to show notes, I contributed too much to the podcast and we went way over long. And so instead of contributing to the show notes, I just reread my letters. So my apologies to my co-host, but it was an attempt to kind of help out with the pacing, believe it or not. You mentioned the Kilmers there. I actually know a Kilmer from that family, Meg Hunter Kilmer, who Kilmer. Matt, she's actually at Notre Dame at the moment. Wow. <laughs> she's, uh, oh, oh, yeah. She's- Remember I got... um. Remember, I got her signatures for her books. She wrote the mm-hmm. Saints books. Yeah, oh, that's that's. Didn't I send one to you, the, David? Family. Yep, you sent it to me. You got it for Alexander. Thank okay. you very much. You're welcome. See, good friends do that. <laughs> Their grandfather was Joyce Kilmer, a man who wrote the poem. I think I, that I shall never see a thing so lovely as a tree. And we'll actually, listeners, hear a lot more about the Kilmers because there are so many of the letters to children um, in there. And most of the children that Lewis wrote to became great artists and novelists and poets themselves. Okay, let's push forward. So September rolls around. And while Jack might be human again, as he promised, he says, I just got back from my holiday in Donegal yesterday to the usual pile of letters, which makes one wonder if holidays are worth it. (laughs) (laughs) However, he does say it's very nice to write to her again. And he explains that he's going to be made professor at Cambridge, which means that there'll be less work. And since it's the way of things, there'll be more pay. Absolutely. And more fame and more acclaim. Before he mentions that, though, he uh, he talks about um, – he says this very wise thing. Um, she's complaining about the lack of religious education. And he says, about the la- that lack, of course you must be grieved. But remember how much religious education has exactly the opposite effect to that which was intended. 
How many hard atheists come from pious, pious homes? May we not hope with God's mercy that a similarly opposite effect may be produced in her case, so a secular education may produce faith. And that's certainly what happened for me. But the kind of wisdom and gleeful insight that Lewis has just, again, you know, astounding to me. I also loved in here how he says parents are not providence. So piggybacking mm-hmm. off of what you just said, Andrew, mm-hmm. there's a hope in that of, of course, we all need to do the best we can. Of course, we need to desire to to bring Christ, but we're all going to screw up. Let's just be honest. We're going to prioritize something in the wrong way. We're going to do something wrong. And sometimes it can be, you can almost have this like deep pressure. Well, if my kids screw up, it's like my fault. Ultimately recognize that we're not providence and God is working in mm-hmm. their lives and he can use good intentions. He can use bad intentions. He can frustrate our bad intentions. Um, and so I just, I really loved that. And I think you can also see it with other individuals in life. Like you can see other people in tougher situations and realize God can use those tough situations to bring the most beautiful stuff out of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Moving on, there is a letter in October discussing fairies and leprechauns, which is kind of hilarious. I'd love to dwell on it, but we have limited time. Uh, but it's, it's also here, actually, that he recommends to learn a language by getting the foreign language version of a book you have in English. And he recommends the Bible. Absolutely. And actually, this is what I did when I was cramming Spanish. I had the Psalms side by side in English and Spanish. And it's amazing, actually, how quickly you get proficient in a language when the text mm-hmm. itself is familiar. Mm-hmm. And in this letter, Jack very thoughtfully includes a French version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I have actually also bought my wife when she was cramming some French. Oh, lovely. Well, and that's part of why the Bible, um, the Latin Bible is written, the version is called the Vulgate, because vulgar before it had a really negative connotation simply meant common. And the Latin in the in the Vulgate New Testament is the common Latin. So if you're ever trying your hand with Latin, it's a, not a bad idea to pick up a favorite gospel passage um, or or some some biblical passage you're familiar with, and um, and and give it a try in the Latin. Are you showing us the the French version, David? Yeah, this is actually ah, in my bookcase because I ended up getting two of them. Yes, Le Monde de Narnia. Le lion, la sorcière blanche, et l'amour magique. Ah, Doesn't fantastic. sound as good. <laughs> when I was in Romania, they had a beautiful, fully colorized version of um, the silver chair, which is um, part of what I what I preached from. And so nice to see those those versions getting out. In the next month's letter, it seems that Mary did actually know French, and Lewis says it'll learn you to practice mock modesty another time. <laughs> but he speaks about his rheumatism, saying that it's not that bad, uh, but that it makes his left foot quickly sore. Uh, he's also sad that he has to diet because he's been getting fat. And he comments that perhaps having to fast for medical reasons is a just punishment for not having fasted enough on higher grounds. <laughs> <laughs> I read that to Kristen this morning and it made us both laugh out loud. He mentions again his upcoming new post at Cambridge, pointing out the differences between the Oxford and Cambridge colleges. Uh, I just thought it would be be a good idea just for our general C.S. Lewis knowledge uh, to fill that out a little bit. Could you enlighten us, please, Andrew? Absolutely. So um, the Mary Magdalene, um, the the word is pronounced maudlin in in Oxford, mostly because of its Latinization 
Um, and Lewis was a member of Maudlin College as a tutor for 29 years. Um, Maudlin College is just down the high street from uh, University Church of St. Mary the Virgin and actually down the street from University uh, College. Lewis was a faculty member of, of uh, Maudlin College. And then when he was elected a professor, a professor only has to give lectures and write books. Um, a Don has to do both and also take students for tutorials. So Lewis as a Don or a fellow had much more work for much less pay, as he said. When he gets the invitation to, uh, to a professorship, um, they actually created a new professorship and there are very few professors in Oxford. So they create a new, and a Cambridge, they create a new professorship for Lewis. They combine the departments of medieval and Renaissance literature and create a new chair or a professorship. Lewis turns them down because he was afraid that he would have to move to Cambridge and he didn't want to leave Warney. And he was troubled by, you know, Warney's struggles. And so he turned them down. They offered it to their second choice, Dame Helen Gardner. Um, but Tolkien was one of the electors, even though he was a, an Oxford man, he was a professor at, of medieval literature. And so he was one of those involved in the decision. When he got wind of why Lewis had refused, he contacted the, the, the college in Maudlin, Cambridge, and they graciously offered Lewis the option of having rooms in Cambridge and also being able to come in of a Monday morning and leave on a Friday afternoon so he could spend weekends in Oxford. When Helen Gardner heard that that was Lewis's position and he was now interested after refusing it, she graciously withdrew. She actually wrote a beautiful, um, uh, a beautiful eulogy for Lewis. And so Lewis became a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Maudlin College, Cambridge. And that Maudlin is spelled with an E. In his correspondence, he often says, it's nice to uh, have the same patroness uh, he mentions something about that in this letter. He says, I think it saves admin work in heaven that St. Mary Maudlin was his patron <laughs> um, and, and watching over his career. In 54, he gives his inaugural lecture, lecture De Descriptione Temporum, which is still one of the best things that Lewis wrote. It's not very long, and there's even a recording of it of Lewis's own voice. Um, Joy Davidman was there uh, sitting in the front row at the at the lecture. And then in 1955, in January, he took up the post and began doing his lectures there. Yeah, here's the passage that he says about St. Mary Magdalene in this letter. She must by now understand my constitution better than a stranger would, don't you think? The allegorical sense of her great action, and this is a reference to Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 7, the allegorical sense of her great action dawned on me the other day. The precious alabaster box which one must break over the holy feet is one's heart. Easier said than done, and the contents become perfume only when it is broken. While they are safe inside, they are more like sewage. All very alarming. Mm. And part of what I love about this is the ecumenical Lewis, who is willing to talk about the saints with a Roman Catholic, as Mary Willis is. Um, and and they understand each other quite well. Yes, the, um, the, the contents of one's heart are only become perfume when they're broken to lay at Jesus's feet. Um, yeah, I wish I knew that truth much better. We'll skip over the remaining November letters that talk about jokes, the French, neuralgia, a bunch of poetry, McCarthy, <laughs> and get to the start of 1955, where Lewis apologizes to Mary saying, 
I've been treating you and others badly of late, but I think with some excuses. She talks about visitors, moving offices to Cambridge, Warney being sick, burst water pipes, his own illnesses. But he says, you have never been absent from my prayers, so try not to be hurt by my silence. This is a subject that uh, you brought up earlier, Matt. Do you have any further thoughts? <laughs> no, this one, I was just going to point out something different of, it's just a really good example of Lewis's concept of love your neighbor as yourself. Remember how he describes loving yourself first, which is we're quick to forgive and quick to create excuses for uh, bad behavior. And here he's, he's just stating it and said with good excuse. So I just thought it was a good example of him living out what he kind of says. And then obviously you have to, his whole point is you have to, he recognizes it himself. You need to do that for others. Quick to forgive, quick to create excuses. Well, and again, he implores uh, her not to write during the holidays. And I think that that's just bare courtesy for a friend. I know that I get pretty busy in the holidays myself in my profession. So I can, I can appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Lewis writes her again at the end of February, and he's a little mm -hmm. frustrated that she sent him a letter the day before going to her doctor's appointment, meaning that he knows it's all about to happen, but he doesn't know the results. If she just waited a day, she <laughs> could have told him. This letter, though, is interesting since um, he then goes on to talk about prayer when one is ill or overtired, suggesting that mm -hmm. he doesn't think we should try and keep our normal prayers during that time, although he does point out that this is advice that he wouldn't give to a beginner. So he clearly thinks highly of her, the fact that he thinks that she should take this advice since she's not a beginner. And he then has some great discussion about building what he calls punctilious systems of law regarding our <laughs> spiritual lives. And he says that it's a dangerous thing to do because it can either raise scruples. If you, if you are always by the book, you can then start becoming overscrupulous. Or, he says, it can give one a spuriously good conscience. Basically, if you've fulfilled all of your rules, then that must mean that your conscience is clear. Mm -hmm. And he, he notes, I referenced this earlier about, you know, if you're sick, <laughs> stay at home in bed. And uh, he brings it up again here. He says that those who stay away from mass at the bidding of a doctor are just as obedient as those who go. Mm -hmm. And of course, he says, the presence of God is not the same as the sense of the presence of God. I'll add to what you said, David. I would not say he said, I don't I don't think we ought to keep up our normal prayers when we are ill or overtired. I would not say this to a be to a beginner who still has the habit to form. And so part of it is mm. he says, Hey, we are already in the habit of prayer. And so taking a break from that is not necessarily a bad thing, especially when the body is, you know, is troubled. And so um, if we're not in the habit of prayer, it's perhaps the best thing to keep up our prayers if we're feeling a little mm -hmm. sick, to know yes. that praying should continue regardless of circumstance. So um, I, once again, I love how Lewis makes such distinctions, careful distinctions about the mm -hmm. Christian life. That's helpful to me. Well, the perfect, the perfect analogy of that uh, is the person that's really good with diet and exercise, then they go on vacation for a week. They can honestly very, and they're, and they're very good about it for years and years. They can go on vacation for a week, eat cheese, crackers, all the worst stuff, put on a few pounds. When they come back, they'll just be right back to their routine. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're somebody who's like really unhealthy, then you go on vacation, it's like, maybe you should work on getting the habit of health before <laughs> you go and eat burgers, pizzas, cheese, crackers, and all this stuff. Yeah. Andrew, you mentioned the distinction between the presence of God and the sense of the presence of God. He describes the sense of the presence of God as a super added gift mm -hmm. for which we give thanks when it comes, and that's about it. 
Mm-hmm. And he actually points to Calvary with Jesus' cry of despair. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he makes the point, the father was not really absent from the son. And he actually gives another very striking comparison. Uh, he looks at the issues of sex, pleasure, and babies. Uh, and he mm-hmm. says, it's, it's a bit odd for me, a bachelor, to write this to a lady. But he says, it's, it's too illuminating not to be used. He says, the act which engenders a child, i.e. the marital embrace, it ought to be and usually is attended by pleasure. But it is not the pleasure that produces the child. Mm-hmm. Where there is pleasure, there may be sterility. Where there is no pleasure, the act may be fertile. And in the spiritual marriage of God and the soul, it is the same. Mm-hmm. Just wow. Oh, carry that, on that with is, the next line. It is the actual presence, <laughs> not the sensation of the presence of the Holy Ghost, which begets Christ in us. He takes the metaphor all the way there. Ah. Mm-hmm. And it's actually also in this letter that he describes abolition of man as almost my favorite among my books, but has been generally <laughs> ignored by the public. I, I don't I don't think anyone any listeners need to know what Lewis thought his actual favorite book was. Um, and so he wraps up the letter by sending good wishes to, I assume, his her cat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But there's a commonality between Abolition of Man and that other book, which may not be mentioned. It's I think part of why he likes a book is when it's largely overlooked by the public, because that's something that he mentions about that other book as well, um, as, as Abolition of Man. But yes, he is a, it, what does he call himself? I am very cat-minded. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of funny because he's, you've just said that he always, was always rooting for the underdog, but yet he is very cat-minded. Oh, yes, yes. He's got a great metaphor about that later on in the, uh, in the next letter. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. We're, we're definitely talking about that. Because <laughs> we find out in the March letter that while life is still hard, the results of Mary's physical examination, they seem to have been good. And he has some very funny comments about Americans thinking about health and going to the doctor far too often. And he actually mentions his friend, the Catholic, Dr. Havard. And then he makes mm-hmm. some comments, which, Matt, I think you're going to want to nerd out about. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, listeners, yes. this is the letter on page 37 and 38 of most editions. And it's from 21355, which means March 21st of 55. Yeah, Matt, what did you have to say about this? Well, he says, but my cough does get better after I've been taking cough mixture for a day or two. He replied, yes, because you don't start the mixture until the cough has become a real nuisance, which means until it was reaching its peak after, which it would have gone away in about the same time whether you had taken the mixture or not. <laughs> now, I'm not going to actually get into an argument of whether cough syrup works or not. I'm not. We are not giving um, people medical advice. I want to make that very yes, clear. No, My lawyers no. insist that we say that. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. and even Dr. Havard's medical advice was not very reliable for Lewis. But I, I loved the book, this book that I read, and I, ironically, actually, while I was at Oxford, Fooled by Randomness, a book by Nassim Taleb. And I just love statistics. And if you just think of the normal distribution, the whole book is about how there's so much in life that can actually be explained by the random mean reversion of a distributional outcome. And so, for example, there's he gives this thing where coaches are like, well, it's whenever I yell at a player really harshly after they screw up really badly that they start to do well. And he goes, it's not because you're yelling at them. It's because that was a very outlier bad outcome of theirs and that pushed you to argue or yell at them. 
And if they're a good player, they're going to end up reverting back to their mean. And so you're you're just choosing an outlier and you're acknowledging it and then not realizing that they were going to come back anyways. So it's the same thing here. I've always loved that. And there's just so much in life that if you just realize we're just going to end up mean reverting and you just let that kind of happen. Hmm. It's a good book. <laughs> I think you should always be kind when you revert and not mean revert, but I that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, you know what? If you if you take that basketball example or he uses even in the Air Force, this admiral that he talked to would do the same thing. Yeah, you can probably be kind and since a mean revert is going to happen anyways, we'll just call it kind revert. No need to be mean at the outliers. <laughs> and then you'll get thanked for, for bringing that person back into line with kindness when they would have done it anyway. Uh-huh. Mm. He then closes out with some fun banter about cats and dogs having consciences, but saying that the dog, yes. being an honest, humble person, always has a bad one. But the cat is a Pharisee and always has a good one. When he sits and stares you out of countenance, he is thanking God he is not as these dogs or these humans or even as these other cats. <laughs> the, the dogs are the, are the tax collectors and the, the cats are like Pharisees. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love his sign-off here too. Yeah, he signs off with Oremus pro evicem. He says, as you people say, are you Catholics? Because this is <laughs> Latin for let us pray for one another. Yes. And that's a phrase that he uses. I looked it up. He uses it with most of his Catholic friends, his Catholic clergy friends. So Father Peter Millward um, and Dom B. Griffiths, Oremos Pro and Vichem. And he uses it in the Latin letters as well. Um, Let us pray for one another. And so that's, is that a phrase in the Latin mass? Um, I ask my Catholic brethren. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think it must just be a more a more common Latin phrase that was known to people at the time. Uh, yeah. People who have no more knowledge, write to me, tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. The next letter offers some encouragement about Mary's upcoming operation. Uh, but you had something to say about the letter in April, Matt. Yeah, honestly, I just wanted to read this two sentences because I thought it was really beautiful, or three sentences. Fear is horrid, but there's mm-hmm. no reason to be ashamed of it. Our Lord was afraid, dreadfully so, in Gethsemane. I always cling to that as a very comforting fact. I think we can feel a lot of shame around fear and like we're weak or we're not courageous, we're not brave. And it's like, no, we're allowed to be afraid in life. Mm. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the fortitude to go through with something that you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I think that that's part of what Lewis refers to um, both in The Weight of Glory, but also in Screwtape Letters, that acknowledging that fear may be the cross that I am to bear today. But as, as in all things, especially all terrible things that we have to endure, our Lord has gone before us and our redemption is contained in his fears. And our own fears can be a way of participating in the sufferings of Christ, knowing that our fears even themselves, while none of most of our fears will not come to be, even the fact that we must bear them is a gift from God. And we can receive that with gladness. It helps us to be more like Christ. Hmm. And then there are then a bunch of letters, which I think we can pretty much move very quickly through. Just a few things that I wanted to highlight. Uh, just some nice turns of phrases. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he talks about a chapter of obstacles, which has uh, kept him from writing back. Um, mm-hmm. He describes in a discussion they're having about poetry that uh, Mary is a fellow rhymester. So I'm assuming that <laughs> he means that she also likes poems that rhyme rather than free verse. And in his July letter, he describes the photo 
from Time. I'm assuming this is the Time magazine. Um, and he mm -hmm. said, it was useful mortification, good as a hair shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and he also references several books that he uh, wants her to read. St. Francis de Sales, who she almost certainly would have read anyway, but also William Law's book. It's called A Serious Call to the Devout and Holy Life. I haven't read it. Have either of you two? I've dipped in a little bit and not really followed through, but he brings up law a number of times to a number of correspondents. And so it's on my shelf somewhere, but um, but yeah, I, I must admit that if I were to read every book that Lewis mentions, um, I would never get anything <laughs> done at all. Yeah, yeah. Although there's um, when he does talk about it, there's this uh, this is great echo not only of um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, but Surprised by Joy. He says that in law in, in law's book, a serious call to vow and holy life. This is the letter from um, the thirtieth of June, nineteen fifty five. You'll find all of us pinned like butterflies to cards, and. Uh, Eustace liked to pin uh, insects um, to cards, and Lewis himself went through a period of enjoying that in Surprised by Joy, but later on grew to kind of loathe insects. But um, here, Law kind of pins us down and, and describes our true state, which is what Lewis himself does as well a lot of times. Mm. It actually made me think of The Great Divorce. It's like a, a series of, uh, of pinned insects that, that you get to spiritually dissect. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. In October, there's a line that he mentions. He says, there are many instances of domestic nastiness come before me in my mail. It did kind of fire up my imagination a little bit as to how much woe he actually read from people that were writing to him mm. with their problems, mm. and some of it particularly nasty. Um, mm. it's, it, because we don't have all of his responses, we probably don't get to see it. Or if he did write a response, those letters might have been destroyed for um, privacy reasons. Yes. Mm. Which is such a bummer to hear too. Yeah. But to pick things up <laughs> again later that month, uh, there's a line that I thought was wonderful. He says, thanks also for the almost scandalously magnificent gift of stamps. But seriously, never do it again. Stamps are money and you have none to spare. <laughs> yes. By the way, when he talks about the domestic nastiness, there's an ellipse right before that line. And there seems to have been some problems, not only with Mary Willis's daughter and granddaughter, but also their son-in-law. So usually the ellipses are referring to some of that domestic nastiness um, that, that she's going through. Yes, the gift of stamps and never do it again. Um, and he also mentions hating putting up a parcel because he couldn't bend his thumbs. It's hard to tie them all up. Well, there was one more letter here in October that you had thoughts on, Matt. Yes, just another. This I'm probably going to end up pointing all these out. I'm assuming there's going to be more in the back half of this book, but it's just another redemptive suffering, offering up your struggle, that concept. And he just says she, this was this letter was she must have sent something with a lot of troubles because he starts out deepest sympathy for all your complication of troubles, mm -hmm. and then later on in the letter he puts. I can only hope that through all this, you are being brought closer to God than you could have been otherwise. It mm -hmm. is not forever. It will all one day go away like a dream. Mm -hmm. And that dash, um, that, that blank, he said, how one ought to feel about, and he says, your son-in-law is a problem. And there's this merciful line, one must keep on remembering that there is always something deeply wrong inside with a man so bad as this. 
And so that's um, that's where he tees it up. The other blank in the letter, um, and I know you're going to talk about newspapers, but one of the things that was in the newspapers was the impending divorce of Princess Margaret. Um, and that's what he mm-hmm. doesn't um, doesn't mention. Um, it's left blank in this letter, but in the collected letters, it's there. And he says something rather poignant about the newspapers, doesn't he? Yeah, he says, I never read the papers. Why does anyone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elsewhere, he says, um, I don't read the newspapers. Why should I give a person who, is, uh, who has been caught lying to me a chance to do so again? Mm. <laughs> now, in November, he thanks Mary for her review of Surprised by Joy, although he does chide her a little bit for not really understanding everything that he meant by joy, which I'm going to come to her defense. It is a little complicated, <laughs> uh, but you liked something else here, Matt. Yeah, I thought there was some really good wisdom in here of just what an ordinary rule of life looks like. And he said, I agree. The only thing one can usually change in one situation is oneself. Mm-hmm. And then he goes further, he goes, and yet one can't change that either. Only ask our Lord to do so. Keeping on, meanwhile, with one sacraments, prayers, an ordinary rule of life. One mustn't fuss too much about one state. And I just really like that of, I think that was one of my biggest takeaways from mere Christianity, actually, when we went through it was that receiving of that divine life, divinization, theosis. When you just center your life around these sacred rhythms, prayer, the sacramental life, I was just reading um, St. Padre Pio suggested to everyone to uh, do weekly confession, daily mass, daily prayer and a daily exam. And that's really how you just foster that encounter with Christ. And notice none of those are you doing stuff to change yourself, but there's going to be change that just happens naturally in that rule of life. And just Christ is going to come within. And so I just thought this was very similar to what Padre Pio said um, to some degree. Well, and to tag onto that, um, many of our evangelical listeners may be unfamiliar with the phrase the rule of life. It's something that I first encountered in uh, Episcopal Seminary. It's really not that much different than, than what we all do about our religious practice. But to establish a rule of life is to kind of write down um, kind of my goals about how I'm going to live. And so some of the things that may be involved is I'm going to read a chapter of the Bible every day. I'm going to pray three times a week or pray every day. Um, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to attend church regularly, but also I'm going to take a Sabbath time or I'm going to take some time to read a new mm-hmm. book every day. Or uh, it doesn't have to be just about my religious life, but it's to look at one's life, realize that our time is finite and set down as goals the kinds of things that I want to do. I'm going to say yes to every dinner invitation from a friend, you know, from this circle of friends or something like that. I'm not suggesting any hard and fast rules. Lewis is assuming that she knows about a rule of life, but that was a new concept to me Uh as an evangelical when I first came across it. So it's kind of sitting down what I want my life to look at, and that gives me something to guide myself. Certainly rules of life can change uh, during seasons, but it's a good thing to kind of have a goal about what are going to be my priorities. Andrew, I want to just highlight one real quick thing that you pointed out that's really important. It's not just spiritual. It can be, I mean, it's all kind of related, but it could be, mm-hmm. I need to spend an hour a week in nature. I need to go for a walk. I need to go for a hike. That's where I encounter I need God. to work out. I'm going to um, eat so I, this way. Yeah. Yep. Those all, it's, it's almost like that St. Ignatius, this physical and the spiritual are interplayed together. So just recognizing mm-hmm. what that is 
and, and you know, the final little thing I'll say is this could be the the answer to to the, the, the debate that we all had earlier of the prioritizations. You know, Lewis's rule of life might have been. I'm going to do all of this. Mine might be knowing me, uh, my life greatly diminishes when I'm pulled in a thousand directions and I don't have just a few really high quality relationships. And so people mm-hmm. might have different things that they discern and pray of in their own rule of life, what they prioritize, what they don't prioritize. There's really no hard, fast rule. So I think that's mm-hmm. just important to know too. There's no hard and fast rule apart from the one that you give yourself. <laughs> yes but even that like andrew said is different seasons of life and it varies depending upon sickness right and like lewis said i shouldn't be fastidious about keeping my rules and be proud of it or be defiant when i break them but i can make gentle you know gentle adjustments a priest friend of mine Mm -hmm. has decided to do his theological reading in a coffee shop um wearing his collar to be a witness to the community and i thought oh man i want to do that I was at the Art Institute recently um, in Chicago, and I realized that being around deliberately crafted beautiful objects was important to me, and I wanted to to make that part of my you know part of my my ongoing habit. That's why we record Pints with Jack each week, so Andrew can be around crafted beautiful works of art. <laughs> yes, Lewis's works, and then their and then their counter then their counterparts. I too know. <laughs> Hey, even yeah, beautiful pictures need a frame. <laughs> but yeah, and I just want to circle back to something that you said there at the at the end, Matt. The point of a rule of life is really asking the question, what do you want your life to look like and being purposeful mm-hmm. about it? And I want to circle back to something that you said, Matt, particularly when it comes to religious devotion. It's, it's not about earning, but putting yourself in proximity of holiness. And you mm-hmm. alluded to mere Christianity. And I think this is the quotation which sums that up for me where he says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Yes. And that's that, that was like the greatest truth to myself a little bit because it, it, there's a deep temptation in life for me to look at my vices, to do like, I think it's Thomas Jefferson, to look at my vices and to try to work through them one at a time, look at my virtues, try to add them in. And I, I'm not saying it's not, you can't try to do some of that in your life. But in the end, if you just look at Christ and you just spend time with them, I think you'd be surprised how little you need to think through the other stuff. Like if you're going to mm-hmm. daily mass, you're doing a daily exam and you're meditating on spiritual readings, you're doing prayer every day. I think it's going to be pretty hard for the vices not to diminish and the virtues to go we, without you even like focusing on it. Mm-hmm. Like Edmund, if your life is full of white witches and nasty dwarves, just keep your eyes on Aslan. Yes, that's exactly right. Or, or when Peter's sinking in the water because he takes his eyes off of Christ. Yeah, yeah. This next letter is so rich, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I'm glad we're ending with this one. Well, yes. This this is the last last one we'll look at in any depth because things seem to have taken a turn for the worst with Mary's situation, and Jack laments that he's not legally allowed to send money to America, and he speaks about a friend that very nearly got into trouble for doing just that. Well, and I wanted to read here there, this is, I'm just going to read this in its totality uh, as we're wrapping up, but it's, it connects again to this whole offering it up. In this case, it's more of a, a, the struggling and a dependence on God, but all very related. And this jumped out this entire episode. For it is a dreadful truth that the state of having to depend solely on God, like solely where you're at, like in her case, like true struggling Mm -hmm. financially is what we all dread most. It's a strong statement. We actually dread it. We don't, we, we pretend we want it, but we don't really want it. 
And of course, that just shows how very much, how almost exclusively we have been depending on things. But trouble goes so far back in our lives and is now so deeply ingrained, we will not turn to him as long as he leaves us anything else to turn to. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting too, as long as he leaves us. I suppose all one can say that it was bound to come in the hour of death, in the day of judgment. What else shall we have? Perhaps mm-hmm. when these moments, when those moments come, they will feel happiest who have been forced, however unwittingly, to begin practicing it here on earth. It is good of him to force us. But, and I like how he finishes here because you got to ease the, the, the pain a little bit. But dear me, how hard to feel that it is good all the time. At the time. Yeah. And earlier in that paragraph, he says, in my comfort and security, apparent security, for my real security is in heaven and thus earth affords only imitations. And so it's his making us look at that. He also, this idea of force will remind us of, of Surprise by Joy, where he says, um, compelle entrare, the hardness of God is softer than the kindness of men. Yeah, his compelling us to trust him is sometimes the most merciful thing. There's also this throwaway line. We mustn't be sure that there was any irony about your just having refused that other job. There may have been a snag about it, which God knew and you didn't. So she refuses a job that she falls on financial hard times and appeals to Lewis, and he can't send her any money. But he says, hey, there was probably something in that job that you refused that would have been unhealthy for you. Later on, we discover that he finds ways to send money through his American publishers to her, and he does financially support her for many years. But it is God who supports her and just happens to use Lewis at the time. (laughs) And then we come to the last letter of 1955, and I just wanted to highlight how he signs it off. All blessings beneath are the everlasting arms even when it doesn't Mm. feel at all like it. Mm. Well, and he signs off the previous letter, um, all's well, I'm half ashamed it should be, with me. This is in the summer of 1955 when he's falling in love with Joy Davidman, having just about finished writing that other book. And so things are starting to go very well with him. Yes. And I, I can appreciate that you overlooked the in that letter. I think his only one of his only reference to Episcopalians, but we'll we'll leave that un, unattended. <laughs> yes, beneath are the everlasting arms, even when it doesn't feel like it. That's a great uh, and helpful thought to me. As we wrap things up, anything else you'd like to say, Matt? Mm-mm. Andrew? Nope. Wow. We've brought Andrew to silence. This is the day. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I think that we've covered a great deal. And I had, uh, frankly, little time to prepare between our last recording. And we had a very full Thanksgiving. But I just am enamored with these letters again and grateful for the chance to talk about them with uh, you, my co-hosts, and you, our listeners. The sculpted works of art we heard referenced earlier. Yes. Well, in the next episode, we're going to be discussing the letter that begins on the 8th of February, 1956, and we will be going on from there. Probably about another two years. That's my guess. But I hear the call for final drinks. Mm, Something's apparently wrong with our bell. Uh, But we'd like to thank our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah, our Pints of Jack intern, Julia. Thanks to all of our listeners and patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Alex, James, Matt, one and two, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. Oremus pro evicem.
as we are quite often to say. We pray for you, so let us pray for one another. If you've enjoyed this episode, please invite a friend to read these letters with you and have a discussion about them. And join us next time. When we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.